before James comes, I'm going to read from Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have a Bible and you'd like to open it and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Um, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 10 to 20. And James is also going to be looking at other verses. But this is sort of the launch pad for tonight. So Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 20. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. James. If there's one truth, whoa. (laughs) If there's one truth we want to be keeping in the very forefront of our minds this evening, it's this. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world, okay? I want you to have that just ringing and replaying in your mind. If you could have a broken record that goes around and could choose a track, what's on that broken record? It's he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I know we've just prayed, but I want to pray once more as we tackle. I, I know something I felt something of the gravity of where we're heading um, over the last couple of days uh, tonight. So I'd love it if we can pray once more. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us eyes to see that he who is in us the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, your Spirit who is in us is greater than the enemy, is greater than anything Satan can do. And we want to stand in that truth because we know that you are above all and authoritative over all. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, I've created some little worksheets for tonight. I think think it might be helpful, so I'm going to kind of go around and hand some of these out if you want. I know there's, pre- there's pens in the um, pew backs right there. I hope, I hope this stuff is helpful, and I hope I've done enough. You can have two if you want. You can just pass them around. I should have put these on the pews, but I didn't know where you were going to sit. Okay, great. You just pass them around. <clears throat> some worksheets. You will see as you look at those that point three is absolutely enormous, We will get there. We will get there. And don't worry, the other points aren't going to be half as long as point three. I'll give you a moment or two. So, when we were piecing the vision together uh, during the summer last year, we were 
adamant that what needed to be included in the vision was a statement of our values. Now, you remember how the vision goes. We have a mission statement, which we say describes the essence of what any church should do anywhere in the world, and you can say it without me having to tell you. And our vision statement is different. The vision statement has very time-specific goals to it. It's location, geography orientated, but we also have values. Now, now these kinds of things can be helpful for anything. You, know, you're, you, can, you can use this for your family life. You can use it in a business or an organization. But you know how values go. Values are the things that you either already, already value or the things you aspire to value, things that characterize the life of whatever group of people that you are. So a church have a, has a specific value. It's because you either that is something you already value in the life of the church or it's something you aspire to have in the life of the church. Now, let me just use an illustration. Imagine um, you do the same thing with, I don't know, say a small building company. And with a small building company, you say, right, I need a mission statement. And the mission statement would be, we want to build amazing homes. You know, that's what any, any building company anywhere in the world would want to do that. And then you say the vision is, well, it's time specific. You would say, um, by the end of the year, we hope to have made four amazing homes within this particular village. Now, a value would be how you want to go about that. So a value would be, we want to build these homes with the highest superior quality. And so the value would be in absolutely everything that you do, you would aim for the superior quality. That would be a value. Or you would say, we want to handle our business with utmost integrity. We want to be honest with our handlings in everything. The way we order materials, the way we charge our customers, the way we handle taxes. We want to be full of integrity. So that would be a value that permeates everything. Now, when we were piecing the the vision for BRBC, we recognized that the church has a very simple mission statement to love Jesus together and help others to do the same. Uh, The vision statement was time-specific, but values need to be present too. The kind of things we would look at the life of BRBC and say, these are the things that we already value, or these are the things that we long to grow into. So if you you cast your mind back, one of the key values we have is that we want to be joyfully biblical. So we say, hey, across the life of the church and in every single thing that we do as a church family, we want to be rooted in the Bible and we want to be joyful because of that. And so we'd say, right, in, in even the kids groups, we're joyfully biblical. In any leadership or planning meeting, we are joyfully biblical. On a Sunday morning in our services, we are joyfully biblical. Community groups, you name it, values permeate everything that you do. Now, there's one key value we looked at and we put in and we said, this just has to be here. It's an existing value of BRBC life, but it's something, of course, we want to grow and develop in. And that is, of course, being prayerfully dependent. Now, we know that something BRBC has valued for years, decades, centuries, you could say, to be prayerfully dependent, dependent in prayer in everything that we do. But we knew that needed to be a value, that in everything we do, if you could just slice BRBC down the middle and see what characterizes everything we do, we wanted to see, hey, let's be prayerfully dependent. Now, this time last year, we were finishing our Sunday morning teaching series on prayer, called Postures for Praying People, and we thought about how we grow in prayer. Uh, Across 2019, we thought how in prayer meetings, we can structure the prayer meetings to enable us to grow and help us develop in the way that we pray. And then community groups this last week and the next two weeks, we're going to be taking time out to pray. 
because we believe a value of being prayerfully dependent needs to be something that permeates the life of any church. We want to grow in that. Now, at the end of the, uh, the, the beginning of the uh, teaching series last year called Postures for Praying People, we defined prayer very specifically like this, that prayer is intentionally communicating a message to our Heavenly Father. Now, cast your minds back, you remember that? Intentionally communicating a message to our Heavenly Father. Now, it's intentional because, of course, it's cognizant. We're thinking about it. That's how prayer works. It's communicating a message. Notice it's not just saying words because sometimes prayers can be too deep for words, groans too deep for words. And it's to our Heavenly Father. You see, nowhere in Scripture do we find God talking to His people and that being called prayer. It's us intentionally communicating, intentionally communicating a message to our Heavenly Father. That's what prayer is. Now, as we think about prayer, there's a lot we don't know about prayer and a lot we do know about prayer. Some prayer we, we don't know. We, we don't know why God asks us to wait sometimes. We don't know why we don't have the answer to something that just seems so simple and right there and we wish we could have it and life would be great if he could just put that into our hands but he's not doing it. We, we don't know the answers. There's another thing we don't know. We, we don't know how the prayers of God's people affect the work of a sovereign God in our world. How is it a, a God who holds everything in his hands is sovereignly over all and in all and yet the prayers of his people affect the way that he works in the world. We don't fully understand that. We can't wrap our heads around it. But there are some things we do know about prayer. We, we know prayer is to our Heavenly Father. We, we know that prayer is in the name of Jesus Christ because we're united to Him. We know prayer is driven because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, strengthened and encouraged by Him. He's the bond that unites us to Jesus. So we can know that about prayer. We know prayer is to our God, as majestic and as massive and beyond all, even our universe. And so we come with a reverence and we come with a humility. We also know that in prayer we come to our Heavenly Father as His children, so we come with a confidence, don't we, to come and ask things of our Heavenly I could keep going, there's lots we know about prayer. But this evening, I want to continue the conversation about prayer. When I saw a space open on Sunday evening where I was going to preach, I knew exactly where I was heading. We're talking about prayer. And we're going to talk about a kind of prayer that we don't talk about very much. Engaging in spiritual warfare in our prayers. Now, I don't know how much you think about spiritual warfare when it comes to prayer. I know until recently, I didn't think a whole lot much about it anyway. But I'm always so surprised as I read through the New Testament and see how often the reality of spiritual warfare comes up. Now, now we know Ephesians chapter 6, the passage that we had read to us, is one of the most famous and extensive teachings on spiritual warfare, isn't it? Maybe if you grew up in church, you can cast your mind back to the Sunday school classes and the Sunday school teachers dressing up as a soldier, putting on the armor of God. Or, and even in Sunday evenings, I know we've had a chance where people have come and taught on this before. But I wonder if you notice, right at the end of all of this, Paul seems to flavor everything that's just been said with a call to engage in prayer as we engage in spiritual warfare. I want to reread uh, the uh, 17 and 18 in Ephesians chapter 6. And take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Look at this. Look how many times he says the word all. 
praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, beginning of 19, and also to me. So you see, we, we know this stuff really, really well. We, we, we can picture the whole armor of God and what a wonderful metaphor that is. But do you see where Paul finishes? With prayer. That this spiritual warfare finishes with, in all of this, the underpinning, the foundation. Here's something you need to keep in mind in all of this, is that we pray, we stay alert, and with all perseverance. Prayer is an element of our spiritual warfare. But the question I want to ask this evening, though, is how do we engage in that? Because Paul's call to the Ephesians, we say, yeah, great, Paul, thanks very much. We see that we need to be praying. But how? (laughs) What do we say? What are we supposed to say? What is it that we are supposed to know? So if I could hone the question down into one simple question I want to ask tonight, is very simply is this, is how do we pray against Satan? How do we pray against the enemy? How do we engage in spiritual warfare in our prayer lives? Because if we're prayerfully dependent, I don't know about you, but I want to grow in my prayer life always. And if that's true, then I need to grow in this area as well. How do we pray against Satan? Now, before we get there, there's a couple of need-to-knows I, I need to give us. Firstly, this isn't a normal sermon. You know, we're not, we're not going to be wading through a very small passage. Rather, it's more of an overview of some key text in the New Testament. There's loads more we could look at, and I would love to, and maybe in the future we can, but we're doing the basics of some need-to-knows as we pray. Maybe I could just illustrate the difference. Imagine there's this beautiful forest that you know and love. Um, There's two ways that you could look at this forest. You can take a walk through the forest, and you can make observations very slowly and carefully of all the different trees and the things that you see in that forest. Or you can get in a plane and you can see it from 35,000 feet and make a few observations of what the forest looks like. We're doing the whole 35,000 feet thing this evening. We're not meandering through slowly the forest to see, make observations. You see the difference? So first disclaimer, it's not a sermon. It's probably more like a Bible class or a lecture, if you will. The, the, second, the second need to know is this. Let's be careful to avoid two extremes when it comes to spiritual warfare. And I've seen both of them at play people's lives in my Christian life. First extreme we need to avoid is apathy when it comes to spiritual warfare. I think often we can say, well, it doesn't seem like a big deal, and we can be quite flippant about the unseen battle that is going on that we as Christians confess is real and there. So one extreme is to be flippant and pretend nothing's really going on. The other extreme is to become obsessed with this. And I've seen it at play in the lives of people, and it tends to get very messy. They get very distracted and get taken away from the things they should really be concentrating on, and it just seems to mess with their heads. So we need to be really careful not to go in that other extreme. But what we need is a healthy biblical understanding that spiritual warfare is real, and we are called to engage in this spiritual warfare. One of the means is by prayer. Now, the question is, how do we pray against Satan? But before we get there, I've got to lay a little bit of a foundation stone that I know we could spend a whole evening on, but we're just going to spend a few seconds. And that question is, who is Satan? Who is this character? Let me show you just a couple of slides here. Um, His name means adversary. Satan means adversary or the one who opposes. 
Another of his titles, the devil, means the slanderer. So the devil seems to give a bit more specificity to who this character is. He's the slanderer. Now I found this definition really helpful. It's from Got Questions Online, but it's almost identical to what you'd find in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. So there's an angelic being, he is, who fell from his position in heaven due to sin and is now completely opposed to God, doing all in his power to thwart God's purposes. Now you can find a more detailed explanation in Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 to 19, or you can go to Isaiah chapter 14 to find more details. But basically in history before creation we find Satan because of his pride wanting to be above God and he's cast out and a third of all angels as well are cast out and become his demonic hosts. Here's a couple of other titles, kind of like secondary titles we find in the Bible to describe how he works. He's the prince of the power of the air, he's an accuser, he's a tempter, and he's a deceiver. Now I could keep going, there are other ways in which the enemy is described, but these ones crop up often and give us a flavor for the kinds of things he is up to in the world, against the church, against the gospel, in the lives of people, and in the lives of believers. This is some of his motivations. I see some of you scribbling that down. But the question we are asking this evening is, how do we pray against Satan? Here is our question. And we are going to do six key things we need to keep in mind as we pray against the enemy. Six key things. Here's the first thing. Do not pray to Satan. Now that might seem quite a strange thing to say. Well, why would I even do that? Well, let's just remind ourselves of our definition of prayer. Prayer is to our Heavenly Father. That is what prayer is. That's our privilege. That's our responsibility. That's what we get to do. But prayer always is praying to our Heavenly Father who is over all, above all, authoritative, over all, including the entire universe and including any evil and authoritative over the enemy. So when we pray, we must always remember that we are praying to our Heavenly Father. We do not speak to the enemy. Now, now think about this. Um, th- this can be relevant in two circumstances. One, one with Satan's subtle and subversive work in the world. It's not like we end up praying, Satan, will you go away? Will you? No. We don't engage with the enemy. We pray to our Heavenly Father, asking our Heavenly Father to dismantle the means and the ways of the enemy in the world and perhaps in our lives and as attack against the church or the gospel. We pray to our Heavenly Father. But also, heaven forbid, if there was any kind of real evil manifestation Obviously, in our lives or in the life of our church, we must be mindful that we do not speak to the enemy. We pray to our Heavenly Father, asking Him to dismantle the work of the enemy. Now, it sounds a bit crazy me talking like this, but you can go online and you can look at those Bible teachers that we respect, pastors and theologians that we hold up and we love to hear their teaching. You look through their ministry and you read through their teaching on spiritual warfare. Just about every single one of them have got one of those uh, spine-tingling stories of something really, really scary and evil happening in their congregation or their church. And one of the things they will say over and over again is do not pray to the enemy. You pray to your heavenly Father. He is the one who has authority. He's the Lord and Master. Jesus Christ is the name above all names. So he's the one that you pray to. 
So we pray to our Heavenly Father, not to Satan. Here's, here's the second thing we need to keep in mind. We do not pray for Satan. Um, why, why, why don't we pray for him? Because his fate is sealed. Now, I don't know if that's ever been a temptation for you to pray for Satan, that he might see the light of the gospel, but it's not going to happen. Because we read in Revelation chapter 20, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This, is, this would be praying for something. Praying for Satan would be praying for something that is never going to happen. So we don't pray for the enemy. Okay, then we move on to the big point, point three. We pray with an awareness. And you see, you've broken this down, and I'll do my best to get through this in time. But we pray with an awareness. Did you notice, you might still have Ephesians chapter six open, but do you see how Paul begins this discussion on spiritual warfare? The first couple of verses, verses 10 and 11 say this. Finally, be strong in the Lord, And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, look at this next bit, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. That you may stand against the schemes. Now that literally, the Greek word there is methodia. So the methods or the strategies, the designs of the enemy. See, Paul's entire entire teaching in Ephesians 6 on spiritual warfare is about being aware of the Satan, the, the enemy's strategy, Satan's strategies, in order to stand against and to equip ourselves properly in this fight. So it's about the awareness of Satan's scheme. So we pray with awareness, I think, in five key areas. Five key areas we read across the New Testament, we need to be aware of, of the enemy's work. He has schemes, his work is far-reaching, His work is subtle. He is sinful but not stupid. He is defeated but still powerful. So I want you to just keep your finger in Ephesians chapter 6 and flick back a couple of books to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, and we'll look at chapter 4. Let's go chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And a similar sentiment of what we've just read in Ephesians chapter 6 is right here. So 2 Corinthians... And leave it open on your lap because we're going to come back there in a couple of moments. Look at verse 10 and 11. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not, look at this word, be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So yet again, there's a call from the Apostle Paul to the churches that he's writing to, let's not be unaware, let's be savvy to the schemes of Satan. Okay, so first thing we need to be aware of is his schemes. What are some of his schemes? Well, here's some of the things I think are the key schemes that we see. Firstly, he blinds the minds of unbelievers, blinds the minds of unbelievers. You could just flip forward a page in 2 Corinthians to chapter 4. We see a key verse in verse 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So one of the key things Satan does in the world is to ensure that people who don't know Jesus don't get to hear about Jesus. And perhaps this is what Jesus is alluding to when he talks about the seed that falls and is snatched away by the enemy. So, he doesn't want to see the gospel 
in the minds, he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Now, this can happen subtly in his subtle work of twisting culture, in his subtle work of directing some philosophical movements, in his, in his subtle work of redefining morality. He can work in a subtle way to blind the minds of believers. But I came across in school, I had some friends who really got involved in some ridiculous occult kind of stuff. I won't go into too much detail, but they came into school on Monday morning saying, oh, we were all levitating, it was crazy, this stuff going on. And I'm saying to them, hey, I've just become a Christian. Does this not open your mind to the spirit? Does this show you that the spiritual things exist? Can we talk a bit more about this? We don't really believe in the supernatural. So either, either you're lying to me about what happened, or minds have been blinded by the enemy. Okay, second strategy. He stops the gospel from going forward. If you remember in 1 Thessalonians, I didn't pick up too much on this, and, uh, but it did make me think. Look at this. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Now, I wish Paul had given us more detail. I remember as I was studying that, come on, Paul, what happened? Really? How did Satan hinder you? Because that would be really helpful, but he doesn't give it away. We don't know exactly what happened. All we know that was the enemy was against Paul, Silas, and Timothy's missionary activity to go and revisit this newly planted church in the city of Thessalonica. So he's against this kind of missionary activity and wants to stop the gospel from going forward. Next scheme that we see in Scripture is that he is the source of some sickness. Notice the word some. Let's be careful. Notice the words some. Now, uh, let me point you to a couple of verses here. Um, In uh, Luke chapter 13, Jesus healed a woman who was once bent over and she couldn't straighten herself. And and when someone criticized him for healing her on the Sabbath, Jesus says, Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath day? So, So Jesus had recognized that Satan was the source of the things she was going through. What about Acts chapter 10? Peter describes Jesus as the one who went about doing all healing of who, those who were oppressed by the devil. So in other words, they recognize that the devil often oppresses with illness, but it's not in every case. Think about John chapter 9 and the man who was born blind. You know, everyone's standing around saying, well, why is he born blind? Is it, is it because he sinned? Is it because his parents sinned? And Jesus, Jesus says, no, no, no. No, it's so that uh, I would be glorified in this moment. And he does exactly that. He heals him and he's glorified right there and then. And it's incredible. So, so that wasn't a result of the enemy. We need to be careful. And, and in fact, we need to use discernment when this. Our tendency in the Western world is when it comes to illnesses and things like that, our tendency is to draw a massive line between the spiritual and the physical. You know, we, we, we keep a massive wedge between these two. We, we tend to, any kind of ailment that somebody faces is immediately medicalized. But that's not the case always in the New Testament. Now, when I visit Kenya, often the opposite is true. They don't tend, they're not Western, so they don't draw a massive wedge between the two. In fact, they're more like this. Anything physical that happens always has a has a spiritual cause. You know, someone trips over and stubs their toe. Who who cursed me this morning? Who did that? I was like, no, we would have just said, you tripped over. But they're like, no, there was a spirit. The New Testament way of looking at this isn't like this and isn't like this. The New Testament tends to be a little bit like this, so it requires our discernment. But we know from the New Testament, sometimes 
Satan is the source of some sickness. Here's another strategy. He uses the fear of death. Hebrews chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear has a paralyzing effect on our life. Indeed does the fear of death, and Satan uses that to his advantage. Next one, he tempts people to sin. We saw that again in Thessalonians. Satan was unsuccessful in the life of Jesus, successful in the life of Judas. But he wants to see people sinning and moving away from their heavenly Father and the path that God has created for us in human flourishing. And then lastly, he incites persecution of God's people. This is in Revelation uh, chapter 2 to the church in Smyrna. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. We see sometimes in Scripture that Satan incites the persecution of God's people. So those are some of the schemes and the strategies or the methodia that we see being used of Satan in the New Testament. So first thing we need to be aware of, he has schemes. Second thing we pray with awareness of is that his work is far-reaching. His work is far-reaching. In, in Ephesians, he's labeled as the prince of the power of this world or the power of the air. So what does that mean? That means his work is global. His work is cultural. His work is philosophical movements. His work is redefining truths that we find in Scripture. Here's what Sam Storms writes. As Satan energizes and gives shape to the worldly value systems, institutions, organizations, philosophical movements, political, social, and economic systems, Satan sets his goals and utilizes and exploits the most effective means while avoiding all obstacles to reach his diabolical ends. So it is a global kind of work. Okay, the, sec the third thing we need to be aware of in this, his work is subtle. Or maybe you could use the, work, the, the word subversive here. Kevin Spacey in The Usual Suspects said this, the greatest trick that the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. One of the greatest deceptions of Satan that he has ever accomplished is making his existence sound impossible to an unbelieving world. But his work is a subversive kind of work. If you ever read the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, I think one of the main points of that book is to communicate that Satan's work is a hidden, subversive work. He does not want to be noticed. He doesn't want to be in a place where the unbelieving world are saying, hey, what was that? Who did this? Who was that? No, it's a subversive kind of work. Let me illustrate that. Um, I'm not sure when it happened, but I remember reading about subversive advertising in cinemas. And basically how it went, you know how you can buy a cinema ticket and it says the film is at 7, but it never starts at 7. It might start at 7.25 and you have to sit there for 25 minutes watching all of the adverts and the trailers for the films that are coming up. You know, advertisers thought this was a great opportunity to try and get people to spend even more money. And so what they did was they, in the adverts, would flick up a picture of a nice cold bottle of Coke or a hot dog or a big bucket of popcorn. But they flicked it up so quickly in the adverts 
the, the conscious mind never could pick it up. So you wouldn't find people in the cinema saying, hey, did you just see a bottle of Coke? Did, was that a popcorn? They wouldn't say that. But it was so quick that the subconscious mind could pick it up. And so what people started to do was look to each other and say, oh, I do fancy one of those 45-pound bu- buckets of popcorn that we're going to spend our week's wages on. Oh, I do fancy one of those Cokes. Do you think we'll go get one, shall we? The film's almost started. And so people were spending crazy amounts of money, but it was what they call subversive advertising, and people didn't recognize it was going on. People would, never, people would just say, yeah, I just fancy that. But it was subversive. It was subtle. And the way the scriptures tend to communicate Satan's work in this world is that it's a subtle, subversive work. And it's not where people are saying, hey, is that the enemy at play? It's, oh, I do fancy that. And that happens across culture. It happens in philosophical movements. It happens with a redefinition of morality, a redefinition of, of marriage and sexuality, a redefinition of what human life is. I think one of Satan's greatest victories in the world today surrounds the whole idea of abortion. I mean, it's just a complete twisting and a, rede- a subtle redefinition of terms. You know, we've gone, we've gone from saying, does this baby have rights to it's my body and I can do what I want with it. Uh, is it even a life? No, it's a fetus. You know, if we found bacteria on Mars tomorrow, we would say, life has been found on I can see the headlines. Life has been found on Mars. And, and yet, and yet a 20 22-week-old baby in a womb is not called a life, it's called a fetus. It blows my mind, but it's a subtle, subversive twisting of even the words. I mean, I could just keep going. His work is subtle. Here's the next thing we need to be aware of. He is sinful, but not stupid. I think this is one of the paradoxes of the way the enemy works. He must be delusional, because he has, he has an intelligence, that's for sure. He's clever. He knows how to shift culture and philosophical movements. But at the same time, he seems to be... He's sinful, but the paradox is that he doesn't seem to realize that he's defeated, and yet he just seems to keep going. He's obviously not stupid, but he's obviously delusional. But we know that he's sinful. And then lastly here, we pray with awareness that he is defeated, but still powerful. Now we know at the cross, Jesus defeated evil. Jesus trampled the enemy under his feet upon the cross, all said and done with. But we know the enemy isn't fully and finally finished off and won't be until Jesus comes back and does just what we read in in, uh, Revelation chapter 20. So for the moment, we know he's defeated, but he's still powerful. And if you remember the Gifford family when they were at BRBC, you know, with those three highly energetic, mad but very intelligent boys, and then a little sweet girl called Eva. Well, when one Sunday afternoon during the summertime, we had the boys round for the afternoon so Taylor and Becky could get on with something. And it was a beautiful sunny day, and I, I didn't know how to control these boys, so I thought, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to fill the paddling pool up in the garden. So filled the paddling pool up, but I thought that would kind of subdue them, but it just incited some kind of a game for them. So very quickly, it descended into madness, and they came up with this game where they would run as fast as they could across the garden and then jump from as far away as this paddling pool as possible, jump into it, slide through, slide out the other side and see if they can land on their feet. 
As it was going okay, I thought somebody's going to broke a bone, but they're having fun. It's a sunny day. Let's just carry on. And then Jude gets involved, and Jude does the same thing. He jumps, he slides on the paddling board, and then as he jumps for the first time, he suddenly moves his legs apart and looks down and shouts, Dad, there is a wasp. And I kind of looked down and I said, yeah, but don't worry, Jude, it's dead. It's, it's all right. And then one of the Gifford boys, because you know those bright as buttons, they jumped in. I know it's dead, but it can still sting you. I know it's dead, but don't stand on it because it's still going to hurt. And so he very carefully picked it up by the wing and threw it over the fence. The same is true for the enemy. We can't fully explain it. We know he's defeated. We know he's done. But he has a power in this world against the church, against the gospel, blinding unbelievers in the lives against believers as well. He's defeated, but still powerful. Okay, the last three points I told you are going to be much quicker now. How do we pray? Fourthly, We pray for the gospel to prevail. If what we've read so far is true about Satan's work in our world, a subtle, subversive kind of a work, but still a powerful and sinful kind of a work, then we must pray for the gospel to prevail. If we know that he is fundamentally opposed to what God is doing in this world, and what God does in this world is primarily through his people, then surely we need to be praying for the gospel to prevail here. The enemy is against what God is doing. The enemy is against people hearing about the good news and the grace and the mercy that is found in the person and work of Jesus. So we pray for the gospel to prevail. We pray over our Sunday morning services as an act of spiritual warfare. We pray over the Friday night youth groups as an act of spiritual warfare. We pray over fellowship lunches, busy bees. We pray over our events, whether that be Christmas, Easter, summer barbecues, whatever it might be. We pray over them as an act of spiritual warfare, asking God for the gospel to prevail. You see, if Satan is fundamentally opposed to the progression of the gospel and for people hearing the good news, then what we need to be praying is that the gospel prevails. Fifthly, We pray protection over the church for unity. I wonder if you noticed as I was reading in chapter 2 that it was about forgiveness. I want to reread verses 10 and 11 here. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan or for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, I want to follow the logic here. Because evidently what's happening in 2 Corinthians is that somebody has sinned in a really significant way that's hurt the church family. And so Paul is entreating them, forgive them. Bring them back in. Don't palm them away in discipline, but now it's time to bring them back and to forgive them and to experience that unity again. But follow the logic. What does he say? So that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan. So Paul wants to see this forgiveness happen in order for the unity to be expressed. And when the unity is expressed, they're not being outwitted by Satan. What does that show us? That Satan would want to divide this church and keep them apart. Think about Ephesians chapter 4. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, lest you give the devil an opportunity. What was that? Don't let it become an issue that divides, because that's exactly what he would want to see. Think about this. Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And and he prays that that they may be one just as you and I, Father, are one. A couple of lines down, so that the world may know that I love them. So one of the most cherished things in the greatest prayer that was ever uttered was the unity of God's people. 
It's one of the most prized things in the New Testament. Wants to see the... Why? Jesus prays in the high priestly prayer that when the church is unified, it has an evangelistic clout that it doesn't usually have. When people can see, look at us and say, wow, look at them together, that shows something of the character of God. That's what Jesus is praying. So, so when the world can look in and see what Christians are really like and how we're unified, that has that evangelistic power, yes. But if that's one of the most cherished things in Jesus' prayer, then what would, what would the one who is fundamentally opposed to Jesus and the gospel want? He would want division. So we need to be careful. We need to be mindful to not even let the cracks appear in relationships. Quick to forgive, quick to talk it through, quick to restore, quick to see that our unity is a prized possession. But, but it's something we pray for because the enemy would dearly love to see another fractured church in this world. So we pray for the protection of the unity. We pray protection over the unity of our church, and for all churches indeed. And lastly, number six, we pray, we intercede for believers to endure. Now what have we seen so far? The enemy is against the gospel. We see that in Paul in Ephesians chapter six, we see it in Second Corinthians, we see it in Thessalonians. It's just mind-blowing when you go through the Bible how often spiritual warfare is brought up. And so if Satan is against the gospel, and if he's about bringing physical it physically affects people. If he's about warping the philosophical systems and morality of our world, if that's what he's doing and fundamentally opposed to the gospel, and if he's out for the persecution of believers, if he's out for the slandering, the accusation and deception, then surely one of the things we need to be praying over our church family is that the believers will endure. And that's something we pray indeed for the church around the world. Well, we pray that for the persecuted church too, who are enduring the fire of the one who prowls around like a roaring lion. We pray. We, we, we pray over the people in this room. It's an act of spiritual warfare. It is why we show up to prayer meeting and pray. It's an act of spiritual warfare. It's, it's why we pray over those in our community group. We are engaging in spiritual warfare. It's why we would pray for our children and our grandchildren, our nieces and our nephews. That's why we pray over crash. Little soldiers, Sunday school teen searches. That's why we pray over the different teams and ministries in our church. We are praying for believers to endure. It is an act of spiritual warfare. So you'll see, we need to be praying, of course, for believers to endure. So we've answered the question, I hope, in part. Now, there's a lot more we could do. You can pour over the New Testament and see more, but that's the bare bones of how we pray against the work of the enemy. Now, where did I begin this evening? In 1 John. I'm going to finish there. You don't have to get this open. If you do want to, it's chapter 4 and verse 4. But these key words I want you to have ringing in your mind. I love this. Little children, you are from God. And have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, what does he say? Little children, we, we belong to the Lord. He's claimed us. The gospel of grace has said, you, you're in my family. We are his sons and daughters. We belong to the king of the entire universe. The one who holds authority, power, and might over the all. The one who is victorious. That's who we belong to. That's the one who we're united to. That's the one we stand in. That's the one. We are in him and he is in us. That's the truth we need to hear. And if you want that broken record, let me put that one more time. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
Never underestimate the power of God's word, but never underestimate the power of the God of the word. Now remember that. We are a church who we want to be prayerfully dependent in everything we do. We want to continue to grow in the way that we pray, discovering and exploring more, even of the dynamics and elements of prayer that don't get talked a lot. In order to be prayerfully dependent, we engage in spiritual warfare in the way that we pray, knowing the truth all along that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Now, how do we finish an evening where we've talked about prayer? We pray. So we're going to do exactly that. I would love it if you could join me. Heavenly Father, we know in our spiritual warfare, we get to pray, and when we pray, we come straight to you. So Lord, we pray that you would give us an awareness of what the enemy is up to in this world against the gospel, against the church, against believers, and blinding minds of others. We pray you would give us a constant sensitivity. You would give us the eyes to see that we wouldn't be flippant, that we wouldn't be passive and mindless, but we would have a healthy approach recognizing that there is a battle being waged more bloody and violent than this world has ever seen. So Lord, we pray you would give us an awareness in everyday life to what's going on. But Lord, we pray above all of that that you would give us the knowledge that Jesus Christ is ultimately victorious, that in his word there is power, that in his person there is ultimate authority. Jesus Christ has trampled sin, death, and the enemy forever. And that's a truth of victory that we stand in this evening. So we pray as we engage and continue to grow in our prayer that you would help us to stand in that truth that we are victorious because of Jesus. Help us to see the subversive work of the enemy through all kinds of things in our lives. The subversive work of the enemy in our media, in the philosophical movements, in the way our culture thinks, in even the redefinition of words that has cost so many lives. He's murderous. He's bloodthirsty. And will do anything to see his diabolical ends and means meet. So Lord, we don't want to be susceptible to the subversive advertising of Satan. We want to be aware, so we pray you'd help us. Lord, we pray again for believers to endure. We pray that uh, our children would have a clear sight of who Jesus is and not be under the influence of any of the enemy's work in this world. We pray for all of the different ministries within this church. We pray over the Sunday services and the events that are going on throughout 2020. We pray there wouldn't be a blinding of the minds, but there would be a light giving from the Holy Spirit. We pray also for the unity of our church. We know Satan would dearly love to see a fracture to see cracks to appear, to see animosity between the family of God. But Lord, we pray protection over our church family, knowing that you unite us, and in Jesus Christ, some of the most diverse people on the planet can say we're in the same family. So Lord, fundamentally, we are praying you would help us grow in our prayer lives when it comes to spiritual warfare. Give us an awareness, give us a sensitivity, give us a hunger, give us a heart. Help us to pray like we should. Help us to be prayerfully dependent. And we're praying in Jesus' name. Amen.